Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and it's a great treat to be able to welcome to the Good God program today, Robert P. Jones. Uh, Robbie, glad to have you with us. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Robbie is the author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. This, this book, hold it up a bit there, uh, this book is receiving quite a bit of attention, and it comes on the heels uh, of your most important book also from 2017, The End of White Christian America. A uh, very highly regarded and award-winning work that really tracked the changing demographics of America uh, and showed how that is changing the religious landscape as well. Uh, so now we come to this book, and this was really precipitated, I think, in you around the Charlottesville time, wasn't it? Did you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's right. I started working on this book in earnest in 2018. Um, you know, we've just passed this week the three-year anniversary of the Charlottesville, uh, the so white supremacist marching in, in Charlottesville. So I think it was a combination of, you know, um, earlier things, Trayvon Martin, uh, Dylan Roof, uh, you know, murdering uh, African-American worshipers in, in Charleston. And, but I think the precipitating event that really pushed me into, into writing in earnest um, really was the the Charlottesville, um, you know, marches where, you know, people were chanting these neo-Nazi slogans, blood and soil and Jews will not replace us and just right. so forwardly out there. And then, of course, you know, killed uh, one of the counter protesters um, as well. And then, you know, our president not being able to um, uh, act flatly condemn, uh, you know, white supremacists and talking about there being fine people on both sides. Well, I should say that you've approached this uh, both from a uh, scholarly and statistical uh, sort of approach, which fits, of course, the fact that I neglected to say you are the CEO and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. Uh, and so a, a lot of the work you do is really with polls and with uh, trying to track public opinion uh, on religious attitudes and the like. Uh, but also you come to this out of a lot of personal experience. Uh, mm. Growing up in Mississippi, Mississippi College, um, like me, a uh, little after me, you, you attended Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, got your Master of Divinity degree there, and then a PhD in religion at Emory. So you're a child of the South also. And so a lot of this was, as you read in uh, quite too long, very a very personal story for you about sort of a discovery of what was going on in your religious upbringing. Can you talk more about that? Sure. You know, um, well, uh, I was that kid who was at church like five days a week, you know, growing right. up. I mean, I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night visitation, and Tuesday night Bible study, and Wednesday night you know, <laughs> spaghetti dinner. And this will sound very familiar to any of your Baptist, uh, you know, listeners. Right. Uh, but that was my experience growing up and all the way through high school, um, you know, and so, uh, but what was remarkable to me reflecting back really on that, that childhood was, um, you know, that I, I never really heard anything um, through that entire time uh, of hearing, you know, two sermons a week, at least a couple of Bible studies a week, um, Sunday school, education, really anything about civil rights, about, uh, you know, the, or about uh, white resistance to civil rights, or 
and this may be the most remarkable thing, being a Southern Baptist, about the Genesis story of our own denomination, you know, that, right. that our denomination right. was our reason to be, and the reason we're called the Southern Baptist Convention was that mm-hmm. we split from the Northern Baptists over the issue of slavery, and specifically uh, that the Southern churches put forward a candidate uh, for the mission field. Um, that was a slave owner and really forced the issue. And when the Northern uh, churches rejected it, basically took our you know toys and went home and uh, formed formed the Southern Baptist Convention, which, as you know, um, you know th- doesn't remain. It's not like some fringe Southern movement. I mean, it it goes on to be the largest Protestant denomination in the country by the middle of the 20th century. Well, and it's interesting to think about the origin of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. And then uh, just a decade and a half later, you end up with the Civil War, the secession of of the South. And the interesting way, uh, the parallel in the way they talk about what it actually meant. Because Mm. when you you hear uh, the way we were taught about the origins of the Southern Baptist Convention, it was really about the, um, uh, the, the breaking of the of faith with the the uh, Philadelphia uh, Missionary Society that had said previously that they would not make slavery an issue mm-hmm. in sending of missionaries. And so there was sort of a breach of this polity, right? And it sounds so much like this states' rights argument about, oh, yeah. you know, what's what the Civil War is really about is not slavery, but it is actually about this self-determination, this right of people to interpret their culture and their life for themselves, and those sorts of things. And yet, in the book, you do uh, a a service to us all in making very clear that Alexander Stevens and Basil Manley and all of these sort of figures uh, at the very beginning of the Confederacy, including Southern Baptists, were very much committed to this idea of white supremacy and the subjugation of black Americans. That's right. I mean, you know, one key figure um, that escaped me really until I started doing research in the book was the person you mentioned, Basil Manley Sr. Yeah. Um, again, you know, all through seminary, PhD in right. religion, never heard of this guy. Um, right. You know, but it turns out that he was instrumental in um, not only orchestrating the Southern Baptist split in 1845, uh, but he was he was there in, like, you know, to borrow the Hamiltonian phrase, like in the room where it in happened. The room. Um, you know, when Alabama, the first state to secede, um, he was, he was, um, chancellor at university of Alabama. And he was one of the key, um, you know, also respected pastor and one of the key people, you know, urging Alabama to secede from the union on the political uh, side of things. Uh, and then goes on to be the founding president of the board at Southern seminary, the, the first, you know, seminary established, uh, by the, by the Southern Baptist uh, convention and was known all across the South, um, as, uh, you know, one of the staunchest uh, theological defenders of slavery and like pronouncing it, you know, God's divine will for human society. In fact, it was God's ideal model uh, for human society, for this hierarchical model of whites over blacks and men over women. Um, uh, but this idea that, that whites were put on, on this earth, you know, by God to sort of play this role. Um, and that, in fact, uh, if anything, uh, African-Americans being enslaved to whites was to their benefit because they were right. being raised up in the Christian faith in a way that they wouldn't be otherwise. I mean, these kinds of arguments were prevalent. And then he also is, uh, again, you know, maybe not in the room when it happened, but on the portico where it happened, he was the uh, chaplain to the Confederacy, who was the guy holding the Bible and saying the prayer um, as Jefferson Davis took the oath of office in Montgomery. 
um, as the first president of the Confederacy. So these things were all wrapped up um, together, not just uh, sort of, uh, you know, at the level of in general, but like the, the actual players were the yes. same people, right? Um, well, and Southern Baptists would probably not know automatically, but their, uh, their publishing company, Broadman Press, is the, the name Broadman itself is, is the combination of Broadus and Manly, uh, yeah. Broadman Press. Uh, and so deeply rooted in Baptist life is uh, this philosophy, this theology of, of white supremacy. Uh, and, you know, you lived through, as I did in uh, our uh, Baptist, this Baptist era, what came to be known as either the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention mm -hmm. or the conservative resurgence, depending upon your point of view, right? Uh, and uh, Nancy Ammerman, the uh, sociologist of religion, uh, made the claim that in many ways she sees that movement, which started around 1979 uh, officially uh, and continues really to this day, is, is really a kind of resurgence of the South. Uh, it, it's really its own sort of lost cause uh, approach uh, that uh, there, there was a, a feeling that uh, that the, the culture of the Old South in the Southern Baptist Convention was giving way to New England liberal uh, intellectuals and elites and these sorts of things. People were getting highly educated and they were uh, controlling the direction of the convention. And this was a sort of return to the Old South. Uh, mm -hmm. have, have, you, uh, have you heard of Nancy's theory about that? Have you wrestled with oh. that? You know, I, I can't say enough praise uh, about Nancy Ammerman. Uh, yes, yeah, so yeah. all of your listeners, you should look her up if you're not already right. familiar with her with her work. Um, just amazing historian um, and courageous historian. Actually, you know, has, has uh, taken some knocks in her own career for being willing to speak the truth right. um, on some of these matters. Um, and uh, but you know, I think it's really important to um, kind of along the same lines we we're talking about to read. Um, to read these movements, not just through a theological lens, but through kind of bring the politics and the theology and the church history all together, right. because the same thing that's happening. So what else is happening in 1979, um, right? It is the, um, the organizing of the Christian right political movement is, yes. is happening in our politics at the same right. time. Right. And what's behind that um, is the civil rights movement. I mean, yes, the, you know, I think there's a kind of mythology inside the Christian right movement, that it was all about abortion. It was all about gay right, you know, resisting ab uh, abortion and resisting gay rights. But really the precipitating issue that really pulled people like Falwell into right. the public realm was actually a reaction to civil rights. Um, and, and the, you know, the issue for Falwell was um, uh, Bob Jones University um, being threatened to lose its federal funding because they had a policy against interracial dating on campus that, that ran afoul of the Civil Rights Act. Um, and when they became under threat, I mean, that's really what activated Falwell. It wasn't abortion. It wasn't, you know, gay rights. It was that issue um, that, that brought him in. And if you listen to, uh, like, his rhetoric to stay with him for a moment, you know, he, you know, preached some sermons in the 60s, and he was um, often would say, you know, the place of the preachers in the pulpit, pastors have no business out in the streets organizing. And, you know, the real target for those kinds of remarks was to discredit the work of Martin Luther King and other uh, African-American activists, you know, pastors who were out right. organizing for civil rights, right? And that became, quote unquote, political 
and somehow illegitimate um, for, for something uh, for a pastor to do. But once white institutions start getting threatened, um, he's totally fine, right? To kind of, uh, right. To, to, to put that away and then to, uh, to talk about uh, the real need for, for white Christians to organize. Um, but it's, it's around protecting, you know, white institutions and ultimately uh, behind that, it is again, a kind of theology and a ideology of, of white supremacy. Well, and if you listen to Frankie Schaefer's account of uh, those days and the formation of the moral majority, this is the son of Francis Schaefer, who again in Hamiltonian language was in, in yeah. the room. Uh, uh, he, he says that uh, race really was behind that, as you say, and that abortion became the issue as a result of basically focus groups that Paul Weirich mm -hmm. and others were doing to try to figure out what are the hot button issues we can use yeah. to mobilize people. And so it's, it's really interesting that now abortion has become an ultimate litmus test for that movement when race is the undercurrent of the entire thing uh, and yeah. always has been. So. Well, it's certainly notable. I mean, after Roe v. Wade, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, um, the Southern Baptist Convention actually praised the decision um, yes. in its first meeting after that, right? So it, right. It, again, you're right, it, it gets kind of grafted on right. to the movement after, after the fact, but it, it's not something there. I mean, at that point, uh, George H.W. Bush praised the decision, the Southern Baptist Convention praised the decision, and largely it's because white Protestants saw it as a Catholic issue, uh, along with contraception, um, right. and didn't really even take it to be you know, something that's internal to their uh, kind of, or at least their highest political uh, concerns. And again, they had been really activated around race. Um, and just one more point on this is, um, you know, if you have any doubts about the success of, um, you know, what came to be called the Southern strategy um, after the mm -hmm. Civil Rights Acts, right. you know, because what essentially, you can look at the composition of the political parties today. Um, so what, you know, essentially happened was the Democratic Party becomes associated as the party of civil rights. And then you have, um, a, in pretty short order, um, and, and spurred along by um, a, a very intentional political strategy among uh, GOP activists um, to foster basically white racial grievances um, a, as a way of kind of collecting votes and moving people from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And by the time we get to Reagan, we really have this, um, really between you know the late 60s and, and 1979, 1980, you have an almost complete flip in the South where white, right. white Southerners and white Christian Southerners really have moved from being solid Democrats to being solid Republicans. And again, the precipitating issue is the civil rights issue that really causes that, uh, that shift. And today, um, you know, this gap has continued to get wider. And uh, today, you know, like I said, in my day job, I'm crunching numbers all the time. Um, it, you know, I was just talking to a reporter about this the other day that today um, the Republican Party is um, about 70% white and Christian. Um, and the Democratic Party is just over is, is just about a third um, white and Christian, right? So mm -hmm. so the Republican Party is basically twice as white and Christian, and yes. and, and increasingly becoming homogeneous um, uh, in a way and it, it's a direct result of this legacy of a kind of southern strategy, um, you know, hemmed on by millions and millions of dollars every four years, when we have a presidential election. Um, and then with this kind of uh, inertia, and initial thrust um, out of reactions to the civil rights movement. Well, the title of the book is, is not really about saying that the demographics of American culture are changing and it's not going to be white much longer. It actually comes from a, a remarkable quotation mm. of uh, the writer James Baldwin. Uh, yep. And I actually quoted 
uh, your book and this, this quotation in my sermon for this coming Sunday. Uh, Baldwin says in this New York Times piece in 1968, I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. So if you're talking to people in places like where you grew up, Robbie, and where I serve here in Dallas today, many of them are conservative Republican Christians, um, maybe not mean-spirited and don't think of themselves as people who would support the notion of white supremacy. Yep. Uh, yet what we have is this sort of embedded ideology of whiteness that is difficult to communicate. It is almost like the uh, Buddhist uh, parable of the, the, the young fish who, who swims up to the, the older fish and says, I've, I've heard about this thing called the, the ocean. Uh, where is it? You know, and, and mm -hmm. the old fish says, well, you're swimming in it. There is a sense that people have a hard time seeing what is right around them. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. It's the way we, we live in, in a lack of self-consciousness about this notion of whiteness being really a social construct, not a, a something natural or endemic. Uh, so how... How do we, how do you, well, you tell the story of how whiteness became a construct and how the church became, in a sense, a conductor of that. Uh, tease out that, those origins and that story a little more as you do in the book for us. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the first thing to say is that I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I titled the first chapter of the book Seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, right? And right. for this very reason, that I think it yeah. is the biggest barrier uh, for me, uh, for us, I think anyone who's grown up thinking of themselves as white, um, yeah. to even see it, right? And 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 yeah. I'll, you know, I think one of the more powerful things for me as an adult looking back is, um, so I went to public school in Jackson, Mississippi, and this uh, this to me is a demonstration of its power. I went to a public school that renamed itself uh, the Rebels. Um, now, when did it rename itself? Uh, about mid twentieth century as uh -huh. Jim Crow laws were being challenged, right, right, by the early civil rights movement. It was a way of this public school putting a marker down to say, no, no, this lost cause values of white supremacy, we are taking a stand, right? And so I, mm -hmm. so it, it was late, late 1940s when that happened. Um, and, uh, and, and I was in high school, 86 to 90, we were still the rebels and, and we were right. an integrated school. It was half, about half black and half white. Um, and you know, it was, it was pretty, it wasn't just, it wasn't subtle. I mean, when the football team scored a touchdown, the band played Dixie when, and a cheerleader ran up and down the sidelines with a rebel flag. Um, you know, our insignia, we, our mascot was Colonel Reb, a kind of Confederate, uh, soldier, kind of aristocratic right. federal, uh, Confederate soldier. So it was so overt, right. And yet, um, here I was going to church all those times a week going to this public school with my integrated, you know, uh, African-American friends all around me playing sports. And I hardly thought about it. Like it just right. was invisible to me. Like it was not interrogated um, at all. And I, I think that's, 
that's really the power of kind of being in it, you know, is, yeah. is that it becomes, and, but one of the things I, I've thought about is, um, to me, what has helped me, I think, just to be personal about it is when I've experienced a great dissonance between me and an African-American friend, or when I look at the data and I see this great distance between white Christian attitudes and African-American Christian attitudes, um, it should mean to us that something's up, right? Something's yes. awry. Um, and so if, if we start like not from a, because I, I, I think the biggest hurdle is to kind of, the two, the two things I think to overcome are a kind of knee-jerk defensiveness and, a, and an insistence on holding on to a kind of purity and innocence, right, in our own narratives. But we've got good Christian resources for not holding on to those things, right? Um, right. Uh, things that, I mean, just, just even, it doesn't get a lot of, of, of play, but I think even if we were to, to recover a more sociological way of thinking about original sin, uh, mm -hmm. for example, right? I mean, do, mm -hmm. the church that we inherit, the theology that we inherit is always broken, right, to yes. some extent, right? Because it's been handed to us with human hands, um, yes. and those human hands never quite get it all right. Um, and so even if we just take that little window of humility, I think um, it should put us in a position to not defend to the death every jot and tittle of the, you know, theology that we've been handed. But to act, and particularly when we realize that, you know, uh, for example, I mean, you know, just uh, as, as, as recently as the 1960s, you know, we had Ross Barnett, uh, you know, the kind of segregations governor of Mississippi, but who was also the very widely respected uh, teacher of the men's Sunday school at the very powerful First Baptist Church in Jackson, right. um, you know, and had him saying in public, God was the original segregationist, right. just flat out, right? Um, that's not that long ago. I mean, that's that's my parents' generation. Uh, but And to realize that if it was that broken that recently, right, right. we've got some work to do, I think, and, and we shouldn't be surprised, I think, that we, ha that we have some real work to do. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, uh, but during the 1980s, uh, mid-1980s, there was a peace committee in the Southern Baptist Convention trying to get the moderates and conservatives to mm -hmm. have a meeting of the minds and stop the fighting and figure out how to live together and all of that. And the two leading lights uh, representing the two groups uh, were Cecil Sherman on the moderate side and, uh, and Adrian Rogers, the pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church outside of Memphis, Tennessee. So at a break in the uh, conversations, Cecil went up to Adrian and said, uh, so Adrian, I hear you and your wife are always on the circuit talking about uh, male and female relationships in marriage and how women should be graciously submissive to their husbands. And you cite these passages in the New Testament, but those very passages also in the very same place say that slaves should be obedient to their masters. Mm -hmm. So if you want to take literally for today, the part about marriage and men and women, what do you do about that part about slavery and their message? Adrian, he says, paused and looked at him and said, well, I think slavery is a much maligned, much maligned institution. We would not have the welfare problems we have today in this country if, it, if we still had slavery. Now, this is the wow. mid to late 1980s, Robbie, right? Yeah. And if you, if you look at the church that he built there in Memphis, 
I defy anybody to drive up to that church and not see a plantation set on a hill. I've, I've been there. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about? Okay. Um, All right. So there's this, there's this kind of culture. And so on the one hand, what we have in Southern religion is a, a kind of denial that we're not those same people who used to be part of the segregationist crowd, who used to make excuses for, if not participate in the Klan, who used to be part of the Citizens Council of all of these Southern towns and cities. We're not those people anymore. However, uh, in the book, you, you, you make some points about how our understanding of the gospel, of Christianity itself, has still the remnants of this kind of theology of white supremacy. Would you tell us some of those ways in which you see that continuing to take effect in yeah. our church's lives? Well, I mean, that litany that you just, you know, laid out, um, even as I'm listening to it, you know, I've been writing about it, even as I'm, it just yeah. is overwhelming to hear, you know, right. um, and but, but, but I think it, it actually makes the point, kind of back to what we're saying, that what we have received, right, from our forebears um, yes. was a theology that was formed exactly in that context. And so if mm -hmm. you take seriously that context, it means that that theology had to essentially uh, conform to those presuppositions, right? To, right? It had to conform to the fact that segregation was not just okay, but probably God's preferred method, you know, for how society mm -hmm. should be. Uh, that, uh, you know, that, that slavery was okay, that whites were intended to be kind of in charge. Um, and we have not really had, um, by and large, at the popular level, any great recantation right. of that theology, you know, or any right. great need to reform that theology. I mean, many of the hymns we sing are straight out of that era. Um, you know, the liturgy has not really been reworked. Um, but if you think about... Uh, just how wrong we got it, you know, yeah, on this yeah. issue of race, you would think there would have been a great reckoning uh, with that theology, and it just hasn't really happened. I mean, the fights over theology haven't been about that. They haven't been about, you know, whether, um, how, so we got it so wrong on this, what does it mean for the for the fundamental thing? So, you know, in the book, I even take on and, and look at something as central to evangelical theology as a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Yes. Which is, Right. There's anything, you know, you and I heard growing up, I mean, uh, on a right. weekly basis, it was that, you know, religion is about salvation and salvation is about this personal uh, relationship with Jesus and that every person, you know, had to had to make this decision for themselves. But the challenge with that is that it was the kind of thing that you could you could simultaneously have a very good relationship with Jesus and be a segregationist and be a slave owner. And that understanding of that personal relationship with Jesus had no bearing on those yes. questions, you know, right. and, and that ought to deeply trouble us, um, right. I think, you know. And so I, I guess what I'm calling for is if you interrogate what happens there is that it does mean that there's this kind of hyper individualistic way that religion gets constrained into this very personal interior, uh, you know, kind of box. And so then the things happening outside the church, uh, the inequalities, the injustices, um, really have no toehold, um, right, to kind of gain any traction, because if it's just me and Jesus, and, and, and I feel pretty good about, you know, my, my pious, uh, my quiet time, my prayer life, my Bible reading, 
all of that, none of that shakes uh, the foundations of, of my presuppositions. Um, and it just hermetically seals off um, religion from the deep questions of justice um, and equality um, in, in society. And, you know, if you take a step back, I mean, it's uh, shockingly uh, at odds with whole other parts of the scriptures. Right. And, um, and, and but, but I think about this line and writing the book, I thought a lot about this line from Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. And I, I've reread that, I don't know, 20 times, uh, you mm-hmm. know, probably. And I would say like, if, if there's anything, uh, the two things I think white Christians ought to go back and read are um, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin and Martin Luther King's letter from, from Birmingham jail. Um, right. And just kind of taking those in and this line, this haunting line from King, you know, where he's excoriating, not the kind of overt racists that are throwing bricks and spitting on people and burning crosses, but he's got his levels of criticism there at the respectable main right. line, right. mainstream churches that are sitting silently. And he has this line, he says, um, uh, sitting silently behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows. Yes. And, and I think that that has been the function, um, the painful conclusion I've come to really is that by and large, the way that white Christian theology has developed, and, and I, again, I should say, this is not just an evangelical problem. It is a much broader problem. It's it is. a mainline Protestant problem right. and a white Catholic problem. Uh, right. But the way that whiteness and Christianity have been melded together have functioned to limit white Christians' ability to see structural injustice because uh, they have such a focus on this kind of individualist way of thinking about religion. Um, and and, and it, what you realize in history is that it, it developed that way by design, right? Because there was this right. pre, con, there was this uh, pre-commitment uh, prior to any Christian commitment. There was a pre-commitment to a kind of white supremacist uh, a view of society and how God ought to be ordering, or how we understood God to be ordering society, and everything else follows from that pre-commitment. And if that's the case, um, which I think it is, and we can see it today, um, yeah, we've got a lot of thinking to do and a lot of. Uh, re-narration and a lot of theological spade work uh, to do. Well, I think that's true. And I think we, we would love to be able to say that our theology is, we get that pure from yeah. the Bible and history, and then we impose it upon the rest of our lives so that we are conforming ourselves to the way of, uh, of our faith. But in, in reality, Uh, Here we had a theology of white supremacy that was there to defend an economic and social order uh, that then had to be uh, undergirded with uh, with this uh, this theological uh, structure Uh, or the scaffolding is the language you used and the church being the conductor of uh, of this um, this enterprise. So, uh, you know, I even say that one of the things we haven't really gotten into very much is addressing the, the, the whole notion of premillennial dispensationalism, which uh, comes out of Schofield and Dallas Theological Seminary and some of these, um, these schools that, uh, that, that really has a notion of the end times that says that, that the Lord's not going to be able to return until there is a sufficient enough decline Right. Uh, in in culture. So, in other words, rather than the church working toward the improvement of society, to do so might actually delay the end times and not be the will of God to begin with, which is why you have a supporter of Donald Trump in the pulpit of First Baptist Church of Dallas today, who holds this very theology. 
Uh, so it, it really is animating our politics as well as uh, our uh, cultural life also. Yeah. You know, it's also worth asking, like, who is a theology like that appealing to? Um, and and, and I, I don't mean like, I, I mean, like, attractive to. Um, yes. So, you know, who is that theology attractive to? It's, it's only attractive to people who, whose lives are pretty good. Right, yes. um, whose lives are on the top of the heap and kind of at the head of the of the, of the social pyramid, um, because if you're you know enslaved or you're really really struggling, I mean this is not a theology um, that's going to bring so you know if you if every day is a struggle like a life and death struggle, uh, in, in dire poverty, this is not a theology that's going to be so appealing uh, you know to you. But but if if you're at the top of the pyramid as most white Christians were. Um, it's a pretty comfortable and convenient thing to say is like, oh, well, you know, look, we, we don't really have that big a responsibility. Um, you can kind of think in otherworldly terms, you know, and then, and exactly right, that, uh, that it really is this, uh, it, it's an absolution, really, of, of, right. of human responsibility. Um, you know, it's a kind of theological absolution of human responsibility uh, kind of theology. Well, with your research in the Institute, you, you, lead us to confront a discouraging statistic, and that is that there is a positive correlation, or maybe we could say negative correlation in a sense, but there is a correlation between church attendance and racial prejudice. Uh, one would hope that it would be inversely related, but instead it's positively related. That is to say, the more people are attending church, and engaged in church life, the more likely it is that they will have and, and defend racial prejudices. Uh, it, it's an extraordinary finding uh, and, and a discouraging one for church leaders, I would say, who are wanting to believe that the church can be part of the yeah. solution instead of the problem. No, that's right. So, you know, I looked at attitudes and then at behavior, like attendance. Um, and because part of it, you know, we've been talking a lot about the history, but I, I did want to see, I mean, the, the subtitle of the book is about the legacy of, of mm -hmm. this history. So how is it with us uh, today? And so one of the things, you know, I, I, then I sort of put on my social science hat and uh, look at the current public opinion data. And, and one of the ways to kind of get it clear on this picture is I compared the views of white Christians to whites who were not Christian, right? So even within yes. the white population, you can right. see this enormous gap. Um, whenever you're asking anything around um, anything around structural racism, so and and I, I made sure that I, I tried to build a pretty broad measure uh, for this because obviously asking about uh, attitudes around race is fairly sensitive. So one of the ways to make sure you're more confident in the results is to ask a broad range of questions and then analyze them together. So basically, right. I, I had uh, 15 questions. And what I call the racism index in the book um, that is largely around structural racism. And it talked, you know, it's questions around Confederate symbols. Um, it's questions about uh, current events like the police killing of African-American men and treatment of African-Americans in the court system. Uh, it's broad measures about whether or not past discrimination ha carries into effects, its effects into today. Um, in terms of differential, um, you know, wealth and economic outcomes between African Americans and whites, and then some general questions on racism. Anyway, when I built all that out, um, there was just this remarkable gap. And it, it, on on the questions altogether, and even the individual questions, we would regularly see thirty percentage point differences between wow. white Christians and whites who are unaffiliated, and and not in the direction you'd think. It, it's actually whites who are not Christian or religiously unaffiliated 
whose views are much closer to African Americans uh, right. than white than white Christians. So just to make it really concrete, um, on the question of uh, around, uh, you know, we've all been wrestling with after the killing of George Floyd um, uh, uh, by by the Minneapolis police. Uh, the killing of African American. We had a question that says, um, "Do you think the killing of African American men by police are isolated incidents, or are they part of a pattern of how police treat African Americans?" Uh, on that question, um, we have uh, whites who are Christian, and again, not just evangelicals, but white mainline Protestants, you know, more Episcopalians, Presbyterians, uh, and also white Catholics um, are about twice as likely as whites who are religiously unaffiliated to say they are isolated incidents. In other words, they have a real difficulty connecting the dots uh, between between these these incidents uh, on Confederate monuments and flags. Very similar thing. About a thirty point spread between white Christians of all kinds and whites who are unaffiliated, who are much closer to the views of African Americans. Mm-hmm. Much white white Christians are much more likely to say uh, Confederate symbols, for example, are just uh, symbols of Southern pride rather than symbols of racism. Right. Um, so I put a bunch of questions like that, fifteen questions together. And even there, you see this kind of um, composite view, and and I scored that index on kind of zero to ten, and white uh, white evangelicals score the highest on this racism index. They score eight out of ten um, wow. on, on this composite measure. But here's the kicker: uh, white mainline Protestants, right, who are more prevalent in the Northeast and the Midwest, and white Catholics who are more prevalent in the Northeast, score seven out of ten, um, wow. you know, on the on this index. Wow. And whites who are unaffiliated score four. Um, yeah. out of 10 and African-Americans score two, right? Yeah. So that kind of tells you where uh, the spread is. So I really take that seriously as a way of, of kind of showing how this legacy plays and shapes and I think creates blind spots uh, really right. for white Christians um, and, and really blinds them and, and hinders their ability to see uh, structural racism. Well, as, as we conclude our time together and, and thank you for being with me uh, in, in this. It's a, it's a beautiful book, but I, I want to end with some hope because your last yeah. chapter actually <laughs> gives us uh, some uh, some pointers toward uh, acts of hope, I would say, uh, where the church is uh, helping to uh, lead the way in diff- these difficult uh, conversations about how we find our way out of this into a new place. And uh, I'm happy to say that you chose Macon uh, as one of the ways to uh, look at that because the First Baptist Church of Christ and the First Baptist Church of Macon uh, share a uh, uh, share a, a, a sort of a, a green area of commons between their two churches. Uh, and one is a white church historically, and the other was built by the white church. Uh, the the black church, and they are finding their ways together. Uh, one of our former pastoral residents at Wilshire Baptist, Scott Dickinson, is the pastor at the, the predominantly white church. And so uh, that's a hopeful story uh, that uh, we're seeing. And uh, y- you were impressed by that. What are some of the things that impress you about how they are making a new path uh, there and making with this? Yeah, no, it's 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 exactly right. Um, so Macon, I should say, is um, my parent, both of my parents' hometown, um, mm-hmm. uh, and I still have relatives there. In fact, my cousin has a law office right across the street from uh, First Baptist Church in Christ. <laughs> there, okay. see it from their lawn. But um, so it, it, and the church that my parents grew up in is actually a uh, was was started by First Baptist Church in Christ uh, okay. over in East East Macon. But um, 
what I what I found uh, I think hopeful in this uh, in this this work is that you know you had essentially you know two two churches that share a very fraught history. I mean the the African American church was essentially uh, the descendants of slaves um, of, of enslaved people um, who were owned by you know the members of the of the white church and mm-hmm. but they've been sitting around the corner for each other from like 150 years mostly ignoring each other's you know presence. Uh, I think it just been, you know, nothing, uh, no animosity, but just a kind of like completely different right. worlds. And, um, you know, um, a little more than five years ago, yes, uh, Scott Dickinson and James Goolsby, who's the pastor of um, uh, what goes by First Baptist Church on New Street, uh, both kind of looked at each other and was like, well, what are we doing? You know, like, yeah. and let's, let's right. talk about this. And, um, and with some support from, you know, I know the group that you've been involved with, the New Baptist Covenant um, right. uh, and, and uh, other churches, uh, form actually decided to form a covenant between the two churches, and uh, and that was a covenant to really be in conversation. Um, and they have slowly, I think, built through potlucks and Easter egg rolls and conversations, you know, um, on the green, uh, a, a kind of fellowship between these two churches, you know, that that um, is is ongoing. And and what I love what I love about this story is that it's not an easy story. It's not a kind of no. quick, you know. Now everything's fixed. It's no kumbaya. Let's just trade yeah. pulpits and yeah. It's a hard. That. It's a hard yeah. journey. There's some really you know moving episodes. Mm-hmm. I mean that, that like just one real quickly. You know that that they recently took a joint trip to Montgomery. Um, right. You know to see um, the the work that uh, the Equal Justice Initiative there has done um, for the National Memorial for Peace and Healing, which is the memorial to the victims of lynching um, in the country. Now that's a pretty tough trip to take. Uh, with an integrated, you know, group of folks, um, and but they did that and actually came back and had a reflection service around it. And I, I think it has really changed, and, and particularly it has brought, I think, to the predominantly white church, you know, some really difficult conversations about that history right. and what it means. Um, but I think they're walking that path and they're walking it together. Um, and I know there are other churches around the country, you know, who share similar kinds of history that are that are taking up uh, this challenge. Um, and I think it's that kind of work on the ground uh, that's really going to make the difference in the, in the long run. I think it is, too. And I, I think the thing that impresses me about what they've done in Macon is that they have not shied away from actually confronting their history. Yeah. Uh, because uh, Scott and the, uh, the white church has gone back into its records and realized that the building of the church for uh, the, the Black First Baptist Church was was done out of the sale of slaves uh, from their own church, which is to say, in order to build that church, they broke up families, they treated human beings as property, and uh, and and then built the, the church um, that separated the races uh, for all this last century and a half. And so now they're really confronting also the question of reparations. Uh, yeah. how, how do How do they... Uh, how do they not just come together in fellowship, but how do they correct that history in some meaningful way? Yeah. Well, this last, I'll say one last thing along those lines. I think it's important. Um, I think one of the things I learned uh, from studying, you know, the work that Scott and James um, are, are doing down there and the congregations are doing there is that one, one thing I, I, I got clear on was that w- white churches, I think, um, have to be really careful about reaching for um, this word that gets thrown around for reconciliation. Right, with, while skipping the question of justice or restitution, 
Um, yes. And and so one of the things I think I learned from watching them is is how important that is. Um, you know, for white Christians who want who ultimately want to reach reconciliation, but I think it's got to be really clear that the path to reconciliation has to go through uh, the kind of valley of justice and repair. And and the right. repairing the damage question is a really important one, and one that I think we can't we can't skip. Well, Robert P. Jones, we thank you for writing this book, Quite Too Long, and for all the work you continue to do to hold up a mirror to us uh, as a culture and as a people, and the way you challenge even the church in America. Uh, thank you for your faith and for your good work at the same time. Uh, uh, thanks, George. Yeah, thanks for your voice as well. Appreciate it. Okay. God bless. Thanks for being on Good God. Thank you. Yep. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Good God. We're grateful that we get to be able to offer these conversations to you free of charge, and especially now during this time of COVID-19 that is disturbing the peace for all of us. We know that there are a lot of people and organizations that need your funding. And so we're grateful to have the funding necessary to be able to present this to you without asking you to support us at this time. Please give generously to your faith communities and also to those nonprofits that are serving to encourage us during these days. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.